Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest, Dr. Jennifer Bennett. Dr. Bennett went to medical school at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Gainesville. She completed her AP residency at Penn State Milton S. Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and was the Robert E. Scully Fellow in GYM Pathology at Mass General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. She then worked at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in Burlington, Massachusetts, and now she is an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology at the University of Chicago. So Dr. Bennett, or Jenny, as I will call her, is here as a part of my series on GYM pathology, talking to leaders in the field about what's happening and how she came to be interested in this area. So Jenny, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Thank you, Natalie, for having me. I'm doing great. I'm actually off service for the first time in quite some while, so I have six days to hopefully catch up on some things. Yeah. Feels like a weight being off the chest, doesn't it? When those slides aren't rolling in the door. I love it. Love that feeling. (laughs) Love it. So could you tell us more about yourself aside from the info I provided above, how you came to work, where you do, and specifically, how did you choose medicine? Did you come from a scientific family? Well, I grew up in Florida and spent most of my childhood time in Florida with those some travels around the country mainly. I was always interested in science from a young age and I would participate in several like science programs in high school. I did one that I stayed at the University of Florida over the summer and did research actually in on a with a nuclear reactor. So that was pretty cool. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then starting undergrad, I definitely was on the med school track, but I also was interested just in biological and biochemical sciences. So I ended up majoring in biochemistry and then went to med school and thought I would either be a pathologist or a radiologist. But after my first radiology lecture, I was like, I have no idea what I'm looking at. So (laughs) yeah, so basically pathology, I just loved all throughout. And Uh I had a few days that I was like, maybe I want to be an oncologist, or maybe I want to do anesthesia so that I could do procedures. But ultimately, I kept coming back to pathology. And there was no question that that's what I wanted to do. So that's really interesting. You know, when I talk to medical students, I think most of them feel the way that you felt about radiology, or they're looking at it, and you say, I don't know what this is. That's the way most of them feel about histology, no matter how much I try to tell them, look, it's so beautiful. They're like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So uh, that's yeah, really The radiologist is yeah. like, everything's in black and white, but pathology is in color. So I, Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm not, I always found it hard and I had to study really hard. I don't know if they had them in your anatomy labs, but for us, they had cross-sectional anatomy. So they would just mm-hmm. have, and I always found that. I would have to sit down and repicture everything to just figure out like, okay, is that in front of that there? Exactly. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So how did you end up choosing GYN pathology as a specialty? You were at, you were in Hershey and then you ended up in Boston. And so was there a certain person in your training somewhere along the way that helped you or was it just pure interest in the material? So when I was in undergrad, I did research on mouse and rat brains So I always had an interest in neuropath, and then I had an amazing neuropathologist in medical school, Dr. Tony Yachnas, who I still see at every USCAP, so I'll be really uh, sad not to see him this year, or this upcoming year. But yeah, he really got my interest in neuropathology. So I came in actually thinking I wanted to do either neuro or heme. I actually had a neuropath fellowship, and then I 
Dr. Richard Zeno, who was at Hershey at the time, who mm-hmm. did a, who's uh, very well known in the QI and PATH field, as you know. I worked with him. I think he was the first attending I worked with on Surge Path and mm-hmm. doing GYN, and I fell in love with it. And I started thinking, I was like, you know, I like doing the brain tumors, but I don't really like the rest of neuropath. Mm. And I just liked everything about GYN. So I was fortunate enough to be able to get a last minute fellowship since I was AP only and decided to switch to my third year. Mm -hmm. So I was very uh, thankful that MGH had an opening. Yeah. I, that's interesting. I I assumed Dr. Zeno had something to do (laughs) with your journey, but I didn't want to presume, but he is, um, I've only met him a few times, I think at, you know, USCAP meetings and things, and he is, seems like a very gracious person Mm -hmm. and a very like personable, easy to talk to. And also it's just lovely that he's also extremely smart and hardworking. So I'm sure that was a good person to to use as a model. Yeah. My only regret is I never got to do research with him since I switched Mm -hmm. over too late, but I still Mm -hmm. keep in contact with him. So if he's listening now, hi, Dr. Zeno, hope you're doing well. (laughs) (laughs) It's always good, I think, for people to hear that they had a positive impact Mm -hmm. on someone's life. So so you have fellowship in GYN pathology and you trained with one of, I mean, you trained with at a place that's well, very well known, but I know that you had some connection with Dr. Oliva because you've done review articles with her and it seems that her focus on mesenchymal lesions has also piqued your interest from early in your training. It seemed like you jumped right in. So your journey to academic medicine, however, somewhat mirrors my own. So you left fellowship training and went into more of a community setting and now you're back in academics. So can you speak about your journey while you were a fellow, what led you to the more community-based practice and how you decided to come back to academia? Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, the year that I was in fellowship, it was Mm -hmm. basically almost no jobs in GYN pathology throughout the country, Mm -hmm. or else they wanted a lot of experience, which as a fellow, you know, you you can have, (laughs) and there's no way. So I had a few interviews here and there, but nothing was doing strictly GYN pathology. Mm. And we had heard since Leahy is well known in the Boston community that they were looking for a GYM path because they they are, they they are not subspecialized, but they do have subspecialists in every field except for GYN. So mm. the guy and onks were really interested in having someone devoted to their field. So it took a little while until they could get the position approved, but then I was I was invited to have the position and I accepted and I really wanted to stay in the Boston area to continue doing research with Esther and Dr. Young. Mm -hmm. So it worked out well. The thing was, Leahy doesn't really have the money to fund research or any big research studies. And it was just getting hard to commute between Boston and Burlington, even though they're only about 15 minutes away, but during rush hour or anything. Takes a lot longer, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and then just all of our schedules trying to coordinate it, it was quite challenging at times. So, I was always looking throughout my time at Leahy if anything um, popped up in in GYM pathology. And then during my fourth year, the University of Chicago position opened up. So, I applied to it and was offered the position. So, here I am now. Lovely. Okay. So, your research focuses, it seems, on mesenchymal lesions of the uterus and this area, it seems like new lesions are coming out of the woodwork with molecular findings and people sort of regrouping things. And now targeted therapies are becoming available for patients. So can you talk about your work in this area 
and what exciting things you see coming? I just think it's just so fascinating how these lesions that we all used to call leiomyosarcoma just a few years ago suddenly mm-hmm. have all these different names now and that mm-hmm. many of the patients are eligible for targeted therapy if you sequence and find, say, a TSC mutation in a PCOMA or an ALK fusion in an IMT. So mm-hmm. I feel like that it probably, the, the mesenchymal world is probably going to be very focused on molecular. I am a morphologist by training because both Dr. Zeno as well as my mentors at MGH are very strong and are very heavy in morphology. And mm-hmm. that's why most of my papers have gone into focusing on the morphology to predict the molecular. Yes. So I feel like that we definitely are going to become molecular heavy because that's the only way we can definitively have the patients be eligible for targeted therapy. Right. So I wouldn't uh, be surprised if in the future these tumors are more classified by their molecular nature instead of their what we think they are on uh, morphological examination because now all these overlapping tumors are coming out, such as I know MSK recently published a paper on myomelanocytic neoplasms. And mm-hmm. one of them that I think had some HMB staining also had jazz sux 12 fusion. So who knows where that's coming from? It didn't look anything like a low-grade ESS, but yet it had the fusion. So think it's a, an arena that really needs to be explored and is really exciting to me. Yeah. And I, it's interesting to me because when I was a resident and I was a resident between 2008 and 2012, the soft tissue world was going mm-hmm. through this change. I think it was exponential, you know, it was, you know, everything was MFH and then <laughs> exactly. it wasn't, you know, so when they started, you know, having translocation sarcomas and, mm-hmm. and now it's happening in every organ system. So right. it's interesting that the GYN world is is more or less catching up to mm-hmm. that, but it, it will yeah. be interesting to see, um, especially in daily practice, it always takes it a while to catch up, right? You know, as a specialist who is very focused on this area, the things that need to be done to really work a tumor up, but there's a pretty big gap between that knowledge and what, say, an insurance company is willing to pay for. Exactly. Or and what that's an our oncolo- biggest issue. Yeah, exactly. So, but I do think as time goes on, and especially since some of these lesions have maybe a resistance to conventional therapies and maybe not a great prognosis, that it will become more apparent with mm-hmm. as the work continues that it's it's really worth it up front just to do that panel and find that therapy and just give it to, you know, right. we understand that. But it, it it's very interesting to me, the, the gap between those two things. So mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're actually sequencing yeah. all of our mole- or all of our GYM mesenchymal neoplasms now in house. Either using are using both DNA and RNA so that we can de- detect the mutations or fusions. So that's actually really a great st- uh, start, and hopefully other institutions will catch up on that soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. That's- so among your roles in academic medicine, you teach and lecture. You've lectured now. I'm sure online more times than you care to have done that. But I assume that before the pandemic came, you were doing this in person. And as someone who focuses on research and you, it sounds like your background, you, you sort it sounds like your interest in medicine and in pathology specifically came about because of loving morphology and loving research, but you're also a teacher. So how do you approach teaching not only in, you know, lecture formats, but also now how are you doing sign out and, and what has 2020 done to that experience? So in the beginning for sign out, we actually had 
when when there weren't that many cases coming out of the ORs, we mm-hmm. actually put all of our senior residents on surge paths so that they just so that since they wouldn't need as much guidance, either grossing or histo- histologically, and then they would kind of just do an independent sign out with us that right. we'd uh, review at a larger multi-headed scope any cases that there might have been discrepancies in. But we really mm-hmm. weren't getting much stuff out initially, except for maybe placentas, of course. Right. Now we are doing sign out at the microscope, taking all the safety precautions into account. And we, and of course, now since we have a new batch of first years, we needed to teach them how to gross as well. So I was doing some one-on-one grossing with them, like teaching them how to gross a uterus and so forth. And now, so we sign out at the microscope as normal. We have all of our lectures, of course, are now by Zoom. So we do didactic and both unknown sessions. That's got a little, that was a little hard the first time I did that because you're used to having audience feedback and instead you're just sitting there talking to your computer screen and you're like, is anyone even paying attention to me? Or have I become disconnected? That's sort of my new nightmare that I'm just talking to my computer and then I find out 10 minutes later, they're not even there anymore. Yes. I definitely have disconnected myself during tumor board a few times. (laughs) I've also accidentally closed Zoom meetings on coming back from breakout rooms, but that's another item. But yes. Okay. So you're doing, so unknowns, when you do unknowns, you give the slides to the residents to preview and then do you review them live with them Mm -hmm. on your computer screen? We've been uploading them to Path Presenter and doing them that way. And I really enjoyed that because I did a Volvar unknown session a few months back and Mm -hmm. I thought it was even more interactive than we have when we use our large multi-headed scope. So and that was just for your residents or was yeah, that online? That was just so, for the residents. So that's really great. Yeah. So you just mail the slides to Path Presenter, they stick them up on your account, uh, and then we your have residents an account. Yeah, we have an account. So we and we have a scanner. So we just scan them ourselves. Or oh, secretary scans them. That's so lovely. Okay. And I assume they're totally de-identified at that mm-hmm. point. That, yeah, because so, yeah, when we download them from our software, you can de- you can take off the label and then path identify uh, path presenter even does an extra de-identification step that I don't know what they do, but oh, definitely it's really a great idea. And then it's, yeah. And so it's accessible as a, basically as a, like a slide box kind of situation mm-hmm. and they preview them and then you can, exactly. that's a really great idea. Oh, I bet they really like that. Yeah. So unknowns, virtual lectures, you're still doing scope teaching, which I admire because as soon as I sit down on a microscope, for some reason, I start thinking really vividly about my breathing and then I start <laughs> fogging up the lenses with my mask. So I'm impressed that you can do that. I don't know what it is about me. I don't know. It depends Um, on the mask too. If it's one that just covers your nose like higher up, that's a little harder. It keeps hitting the microscope and fogs it all up. I've learned that. Uh I almost wonder like the old trick that some surgeons I used to know would take a piece of tape and put it over their nose Mm. at the top, you know? Yeah. But I I, if I did that every day, I'd probably get some kind of irritation. But (laughs) rash, yeah. Whatever, 2020, I'll figure you out. So for those who may be thinking about academic medicine, especially in a subspecialty format, I like to talk about what your work days are like, especially if you could compare, I mean, you can talk about your your job now, your days now, but how did that compare to being in a more community setting and what parts do you find most rewarding in your day? So when I was in the community setting, it was basically signing out from the minute I got in to the minute I left. And to me, that I really started to burn out. And I was like, I'm too young to burn out. I've only been in practice for a couple of years. And I would just mm-hmm. get bored just sitting there signing out case after case. 
And you were um, doing general? or were Yeah, you I was doing general, general with a focus in GYN pathology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now I just do GYN path and then, of course, a couple of days on frozens and then a week of autopsy. But yeah, our service is a little, or our hospital is a little different in that every other place I've been in, the slide, all the slides for that day either come out late at night or early in the morning and then the residents preview and then you sign them out. Here, mm-hmm. they kind of come out sporadically all throughout the day. So we have several, I normally have like two se- sign-out sessions with the fellow and then two sign-out sessions with the resident. Oh, wow. Um, just mm-hmm. depending on how the workflow goes for that day. Mm-hmm. So it can be kind of challenging because you're trying to schedule everything and still allow the residents to have time to go over to growth. So it is a little challenging, but it just takes time management, of course. So whenever I'm not on service, I'm attempting to work on research or else do teaching or admin work like the rest of us all do. So, mm-hmm. um, And that's interesting. You do, your slides come out on a rolling basis. That's how it is where I am now as well. And it is, it's a little bit more challenging mentally for me because Mm -hmm. I kind of like to, in community practice at the beginning of the day, I could more or less, you know, size up my stack and kind of get an idea. Or, I mean, the lab was right down the hall. I could just walk down and say, how many blocks did you all cut last Mm -hmm. night and what's coming out for me today? And it's very different being in a bigger place where histology is in a different building and everything gets careered over, you know, so. Luckily um, our histology lab's right around the corner, but oh, you still beautiful. never know when everything's coming out. And our placentas yeah. actually get sent out somewhere else to get cut to another institution just so that oh. we don't get the histo lab in-house overwhelmed. Okay. So then all of a sudden we'll get like a dump of like 15, 20 placentas randomly mm. one night. So that's never mm-hmm. fun when you get that. <laughs> but No, it really isn't. I remember when I was a fellow and the resident would, I think it was usually like on Mondays or there was some pattern that I don't remember, but it mm-hmm. was like most days you'd have five or six or seven placentas. And then some Mondays you'd have like 25. <laughs> some days yeah. I would have to go back there and like beg the PAs to help them. Cause I'm like, come on, nobody can cut 25 placentas in a day. So as someone who grew up in the South in Florida, you're the first, I think you're the first person I've talked to on the podcast who grew up in Florida. I know <laughs> Carlos trained at the university yeah. of Miami, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to think, I don't think I know anyone else. I know, I have another friend who works in Miami, but I don't think I've met anybody who ended up in pathology who grew up there. So, so glad I can be your first. First, yeah, Florida. Um, and Florida is like its own country. I mean, I went there, I went there a lot as a kid. I love I loved the beaches. I still do. It's a beautiful place. But I honestly, especially with the recent presidential election, sometimes I don't understand what's happening because it's such an that eclectic makes two mix. Of us. But it's such an eclectic mix of people. You know, like the south of Florida is like a huge city. It's very, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a big multicultural place. And then you have, you know, some more rural areas. So it's just, to me, it's very interesting. And I'm sure you, you read a book one day. about <laughs> Yeah. In all, my, in all my spare time. <laughs> exactly. Well, when you're like, you know, sitting in a rocking chair somewhere. So you grew up in the South and then you trained in Pennsylvania, which I is kind of like mid Atlantic, but mm-hmm. also Hershey's not a big town. And then you were in the Northeast and now you live in Chicago. So I think you've kind of been around the United States and mm-hmm. I, I love ta- asking this question. So what are you thinking about the place you live now? How does it compare to the other places you've lived? And then since you've moved around so much as someone who moves, what do you do to feel, make a new place feel like home? And it seems like you haven't lived in Chicago that terribly long. But and some of it's been during the pandemic. But if we could just sort of factor that out, what do you like most about living in Chicago? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, to answer what makes me feel at home is I think overall I'm a, more of a homebody. I like to, I'm kind of really introverted and I enjoy gathering with small groups of friends when there's no COVID going on, of course. And yeah, so I, I, the hardest part for me is always trying to find that small group of friends everywhere. And it was kind of hard. And it was definitely a lot more challenging in Boston because I had some friends during residency or during fellowship who were residents or fellows, but then they would move on. I would still be there. And then everyone in my practice would be a lot, was a lot older than me. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was kind of a disconnect. So definitely moving here was great because we have a bunch of younger attendings. And then I joined meetup groups when I got here as well. So that was nice. So I don't really know if there's one distinct thing that makes me feel at home. I think just having my surroundings and like my familiar furniture and and my cat of course so oh cat I love cats yes (laughs) yeah so I think just that has always made me feel at home I mean I always will consider Florida my home since I lived there for the longest period of my time of my life Uh so but yeah I definitely like moving to new places I def I don't want to keep on moving because that's I just hate moving (laughs) so yeah um, it is an exhausting process. And when, when I tell people where I've lived, sometimes they look at me like I'm a little nuts because I was, you know, Kentucky to North Carolina to Baltimore to Colorado, now in Rhode Island. And people are like, were you in the military? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I was doing medical training. I don't know. Anyway, it's it's not an enjoyable experience, but I do find at least, I mean, you and I are probably around the same age mm-hmm. that it's nice sometimes to have an experience when you're in a place working that does things a certain way to at least have been other places and see how other people mm-hmm. approach that problem. So, <laughs> yeah. So I have one other question that wasn't in the outline. You can mm-hmm. feel free to not answer it or answer it. So you are at a place that has a GYN fellowship and there aren't that many in the country. So it's interesting that you trained with Dr. Zeno, who's very well known. I assume that Hershey does not have a GYN fellowship. No, they have a Am search right? path. Yeah, they have a search right. path. So you ended up in Boston, obviously, you Mm -hmm. went to a place where there is excellent training. What do you think, having seen what specializing in GYN looks like in a community setting and now in an academic setting, what would your advice be to someone who's very interested in GYN pathology? Would you say doing a surge path fellowship in a place that has a GYN heavy focus is a good way to go for maybe someone who is looking at community practice? Or do you think really going forward since it's 2020, that really going to a place and just having a very narrow focus on GYN is is a preferable path. How do you see that? I mean, I think if someone's interested in community, probably doing surge path or cytopath or heme path would be the best way to go. And maybe if they did surge path, maybe being able to do focus a few more months in whatever field they're interested in, say GYN, GI, et cetera, I would definitely go to a place that has a large volume, has a lot of console cases, because I feel like just seeing how outside pathologists sign things out is the best way for a fellow to learn since mm-hmm. I definitely see enough where lymph nodes were called negative and there was actually tumor in them. So mm-hmm. I think that's the best way, seeing the consults and what errors people can make on the outside to make you more aware of that and hopefully not uh, do that in the future. I mean, none of us are perfect, so right. we can't uh, eliminate that completely. But I think just being able to see during your training how things are done in other places, and especially more community settings mm-hmm. for signing out difficult cases is very advantageous. 
I mean, if someone definitely wants to go into academics, I would say definitely do a GYN or whatever subspecialty they're interested right. in. Yeah. yeah. And I, the other thing I noticed since you mentioned consults, the, the thing that happens, I think, and I assume that this is the same at, at MGH, that you look at so many consults as a fellow, you know, just stacks and stacks of consults that you start to see patterns, not only in the things that people maybe are falling short or misinterpreting, but also in the questions that everyone has, right? I, I know, uh, for example, like how many times did you get a, a atypical smooth muscle tumor or a stump? And mm-hmm. people couldn't come down on one side of the fence. I assume people are just sending those to Dr. Oliva, like by the bucket pool. So it's a wide mixture of cases. Dr. Young yeah. tends to get a lot more sex cord stromal tumors right. or right. like weird ovary yeah. things. But. Yeah. And you start to see, you know, that people maybe overcount mitotic figures in smooth mm-hmm. muscle tumors or yes. have the same question about what kind of necrosis is this. So you start to see patterns mm-hmm. and then when you're sitting at your own scope, say, you know, at Leahy in private practice, and one of those lesions crosses your desk, to me, that made me feel more comfortable making those calls on my own, knowing Mm -hmm. that I had seen that question asked a hundred times. And I had seen how someone like, you know, Biggie Runette or Russell Bang or Bob Kerman answered that question. Right. Mm -hmm. Kind of hear their voice in your head. Exactly. You hear, (laughs) I could always hear Dr. Young dictating a consult letter in my head as I would be reading as yeah, I would be looking at case, I would be like, oh, he would be citing this paper in his consult letter right now. <laughs> and, and you tell them that and they're like, are you crazy? Like, no, I'm not crazy. But it just, I think doing that kind of fellowship, even if you do intend to go into community practice, it might make it harder than to turn around and like sign out thyroid and sign out colon. But mm-hmm. um, it does, at least for me, because I like knowing things thoroughly, that was always very helpful mm-hmm. uh, to know the pattern of questions and you know, even your own colleagues would sometimes have that question. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, and then, you know, five or six years later, you still know that this is the way that this person would approach an immature teratoma. Like you can just click that back on. It's yep. great. So, <laughs> Definitely. Totally agree. So this has been really fun. I appreciate you doing this. I know your uh, off service time is very precious, <laughs> but I wanted to add your voice to the conversation and I appreciate you coming. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. I had a great time. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. So welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and fellow GYM pathology aficionado, Dr. Joe Rabin. Dr. Rabin, originally from California, was an undergraduate at Brown University, where I currently work. After when she went, he went to Harvard for medical school and a master's of public health. He then returned to the West Coast to complete his anatomic pathology residency, as well as fellowships in general surgical pathology and in cytopathology at the University of California, San Francisco. Then it was back to the East Coast once again for a GYN and breast pathology fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. Currently, he is a professor at UCSF and serves as the director of the GYN Pathology Fellowship. He is associate editor of the International Journal of Gynecological Pathology and co-chair of the Education Committee for ISGIP. So Dr. Raven is here as a part of my series on GYN pathologists, which features many notable folks now, and we're adding him to the ranks. So Joe, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Well, Hello, thanks. It's great to be here on your on your podcast. I'm doing well. Good. Yeah, it's a, it's a good day. So could you tell me more about yourself? Tell everyone more about yourself aside from the info I provided above, how you came to be working where you do and how you came to be interested in medicine. Was yours a scientific family? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting story. I did grow up in a, in a 
medical professional family. My dad was an internal medicine doctor and my mom was a nurse, surgical nurse. And I have an uncle who's a doctor. And so, yeah, there's, there's medical folks in my family. And all growing up as a kid, I heard all the stories about the hospital and my dad's clinic. I think I kind of absorbed the idea that, oh, that's, that's what I'm going to do. But I don't think I really understood as a kid what that meant. And even in high school, I was always curious about science. And so it seemed natural that I would go into the medical field. But to be honest, I think I really didn't understand that I was destined to be a physician until I was almost done with medical school. So <laughs> it's inconvenient timing. Yeah. You must have lied yeah. on your entrance exam or uh, yeah. whatever. <laughs> now, you know, I, I, I think I'll, I'll share with you my meandering story of discovering medicine. I, um, I've always been very curious about learning, learning how things work, what's the underpinnings of things. I'm also a very visually oriented person. Good field you've picked for yourself. Yeah. 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 And so I like, you know, I like trying to figure out patterns and systems and classifications. Like for me as a kid, going to the zoo was the most fun thing in the world because, because you go see all the monkeys and, you know, okay, how are they all related? Some are, some are orange, some are brown, some have long tails, some have short tails. And that whole kind of process of like comparing the different monkeys. I mean, I, as a kid, I loved that. And the phylogenetic tree. Exactly. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I didn't know that term back then, but, um, (laughs) but that was fun for me. And so, you know, I had the luxury of going to a um, liberal arts um, undergrad where, um, you know, first of all, I cashed in on a lot of AP credits and science and math from high school. And so even though I, I did, kind of just by default end up with a um, Bachelor of Science in Biology, I actually used a lot of my AP credits to kind of move forward and actually take a lot of art history, archaeology, philosophy courses. And, and I have to say, I came very close to wanting a career in art history. I thought I was going to go to grad school in art history and specifically write about architecture and how architecture is a way to understand history and different cultures and, um, you know, how, how people have lived throughout civilization. You look at the structures that they live in, the structures that they do worship in, and, and it tells you a story of who they are. And so I, I really thought that that was going to be my career and kind of write about with a little bit of focus on sort of modern architecture I love traveling to places specifically, you know, with a list of buildings that I'm going to go check out. And a lot of my trips around the world, you know, for fun have, have had a list of, of buildings that I wanted to go see. And so, you know, it may sound maybe not so intuitive, but I think the world of art history and the world of pathology have a lot of overlap between them because you're trying oh, this to... is a first you're a podcast first right now <laughs> let's hear this analogy yeah. <laughs> yeah but I tell you what happened was what happened was I sort of towards the the end of college I I kind of couldn't quite figure out the nuts and the bolts and the practical aspects of am I really going to go to grad school and then what you know I I see these professors that have these great careers in the ivory towers doing this, but, you know, is that really something that I have a model for? 
of seeing how I could do that. And again, like you asked me the question, did I grow up in the medical family answers? Yes. Mm -hmm. So what I, what was comfortable for me was this idea of going to medical school. And so I have to say that, you know, I ended up going to medical school, not really understanding that that was the right match for me. It kind of was just a default and there wasn't any pressure from my family to do this. It's just, I think I kind of lulled myself into thinking, Hmm, I'm good at this. You know, biology is, is something that is natural huh. to me. And what happened was I very, very quickly became disenchanted and unenamored with the entire medical process in my first two years in med school. And I, I left. I, I, I got burned out. I became, it was, it was like going from night to day. So my undergraduate experience was this wonderful world of discovery and ideas and innovation and thought. And then you go to medical school and, you know, I went to an okay medical school, but there wasn't, I I didn't experience that I was being asked to think critically. It was basically a lot of regurgitation. Yeah. Memorization, regurgitation. And Mm -hmm. it really like for my personality, it didn't work well. And so probably within about the first couple months of the first year of med school, I started looking for other things to do. And I gave it a good long, you know, thought. And what I ended up doing is I took time out from medical school and I went to go get a master's in public health because I thought, okay, it's a very solutions-based career. The field is very solutions-based. How do we find answers to very difficult questions? There is overlap, of course, with medicine. But as I was talking to advisors and other people who had done this, I realized, wow, this is a very solutions-oriented field. You know, you see all these people who are running different public health agencies all around the world. You think about the WHO. You know, these are real-world problems that people are trying to bring tools to, to, to help other people. And so to me, that was stimulating that. And, and so it was the best two years, you know, maybe not, not as exciting or exciting in a different way than my undergraduate years. But, you know, I was surround. I, you know, here's the interesting thing in medical school is I was surrounded by my peers. When I went to grad school, I was the young kid on the block because at my, so I went to Harvard public, the school of public health there, and probably everybody there, I would say was mid-career. So I was the baby, you know, I had no experience compared to, you know, there was somebody who was a direct director of um, Médecins Sans Frontières at some, you know, subcontinental level in Africa, people who were really doing things. And so I was surrounded by really innovative, thoughtful, curious, creative people. And that was very different than my medical school experience. And so I thought, wow, this, this is a really wonderful way to merge creativity and healthcare and solutions-based thought. So I did that. I did that for, I got, I got my master's degree and I, I focused on clinical trial design because, you know, the investigative nature of that and how do you, how do you design things, take into account all the potential pitfalls of bias. And, you know, that's one of the major issues with trying to build clinical trials. And it was just a lovely year. It was, it was a really lovely year. And then I took another year off and I actually worked at the Department of Public Health in Boston, where 
I worked on a project to try to understand pediatric deaths, child deaths in the state of Massachusetts. And really, yeah, there really was no data on this. And the whole idea was, you know, if we gather this data and understand the patterns of why, you know, what are the leading causes of of death in, in, in children, maybe there's interventions. And the, the evidence could also be used from a governmental standpoint for allocating resources, allocating funding. And so there was a real, you know, outcome-based need for this data. It was actually going to drive decision-making. And so I did that for a year and we produced a report and, you know, sent it onward through, through the governmental channels. And it really kind of reinvigorated me to think about how how I could maybe come back to medicine, get my MD, and then move forward with something that, that was refreshing or exciting. And at the time, I had kind of two different tracks that I was thinking about. In my undergrad years, I, I did get exposed to histopathology or histology. I took a biology course that was kind of upper level. And I, it was fascinating to me just to look down a microscope and see all these patterns of cells. And so I've always, I think I've always had the concept of seeing through a microscope as, as part of my idea of what medicine is about. So there was, there was part of me in med school that thought about, you know, pathology. And then the other part that I thought about, which kind of appeals to my, my interest in, you know, trying to figure out relationships of things very, very quickly and come up with the solution. This may sound kind of unintuitive, but I thought, well, trauma surgery, that is like the ultimate of trying to figure out I'm just very piecing, quickly. piecing together the Raven puzzle here. We have art history, public yeah. health, trauma I have a lot surgery, of things I'm interested and in. histopathology. I'm just like, oh, yeah. So you're I, playing there's, there's, square. If anyone's playing bingo at home, you can yell bingo because yeah. this, this is an interesting eclectic list of things here. Okay. That's only part of the things that, you know, my, my career is, is I'm hoping to incorporate over <laughs> some point. I need to retire because I've got this whole other set of careers that I can tell you about that I need I do to. too. I have a list of careers that I wish I could yeah. also be doing at the same time, but it's kind of hard to get to everything, even where the job we're already doing. So, yeah. you know, there's only 36 hours in a day. Mm-mm. And you know Mm-mm. that's lie, lie. Maybe <laughs> on the west coast, not on the east coast. There's yeah, not... <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah. yeah, so you ended up going back for your third and fourth years of medical school. Yeah, so yeah. I kind of got reinvigorated. I found my north star, so to speak, and thought that I was, you know, going to be best best aligned with going into a general surgery career and focusing on on trauma. And that's what I matched in for my residency and came out to San Francisco. And I was signed up for a seven-year categorical general surgery program. And I didn't really start taking in. And, you know, here's the thing for, for any of the medical students out there, you know, thinking about how do you start, you know, planning for your career, certain fields, you know, obviously are more competitive than others and trying to get into general surgery program is like really competitive. You basically have to be 125% committed from, mm-hmm. from day one. If you're going to go to, you know, sort of the, if, if you're trying to get into a very competitive program. And so that second track that I told you about, I was kind of interested in pathology. It wasn't until sort of my fourth year that I started taking the rotations. And, you know, I took, took a rotation at the Brigham the month after I had submitted my match list for general surgery. So the timing was off, 
But I did realize through that rotation and through some other experiences that by the time match day came, I was, I think, the only person who wasn't smiling at match day because I had this envelope saying that I was going to go to UCSF general surgery. And I knew that I was going to bail after one year and pursue pathology. There's so. a lot of scandal in your past. Joe. <laughs> a lot of scandal. You know, it's not scandal. I look at it more like if you're curious and you're creative and you have lots of ideas, how do you go about figuring out which pathway to go down? And I think it's totally fine in life. Oh, to... yeah. It's just knowing you now, I would never <laughs> like assume that in your past, there's this much intrigue, I guess is the word I should it's use. It's not linear. Know. Yeah. My life has not been linear at all. <laughs> But yeah, I would say that I would say that I've had a lot of reevaluations and reassessments and I'm a big fan of it. I think it's yeah. As you learn as you as you start to know yourself better, you can make better decisions. And you know I think a lot of people don't have the guts to do that. I mean, don't you know a lot of people who are oh. doing a career that makes them miserable and they're absolutely. still doing it and you're like, "Well, you know, Absolutely. You're and the you only have one who, yeah. yeah, you have to have that that so, so you're right, Natalie, there's activation energy that is huge yeah. Yeah. To, to make a large scale change like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my personality is that it's, it's really important for me internally to, you know, to follow what I'm internally passionate about. And it's hard, but, you know, tune out all those external forces. And it is. Yeah. It, it's, I think it's difficult, you know, forget medicine, any part of life, you know, trying to figure out what your internal ideas and wishes and senses of joy and fulfillment and passion, you know, how do you balance that against all the pressures that you may not even see as pressures? They may be sort of subconscious responses to external expectations of your family or your peer group, your friends, you know, those things kind of can very easily influence the decisions that you make. Yes. Yeah. Especially now, that time becomes like time management becomes important. I start to see my time as like a pie chart, like where am I putting my time? And that's all about priorities and like what actually brings you joy versus what you yeah. feel like you have to do. And it's a, it's like an everyday decision for me. So I, I totally I totally empathize. Agree. Yeah. I don't know how this conversation got down this road. I feel like I'm having a conversation that I may have had if I had gone to Brown, but I did not go to Brown. <laughs> well, you work about <laughs> two miles away. so I do. Yeah. And I, I'm doing this fellowship and I teach students at Brown sometimes. And it's a, it is a world apart from my undergraduate experience, but how <laughs> lovely that there are places like that in the world. So you made it to pathology and you were sort of pinging back and forth between the coasts. How did you end up choosing GYM pathology as a specialty? Was there somebody in San Francisco who inspired you to go back out to Boston at that point? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, I think, to be honest, it comes, it comes, it's a factor of two things. So it comes back, I think, at the core to what I told you about my, my, my interest in like visual patterns. I'm a very visually oriented person. And so, to be honest, the, the histopathology of gynecologic disease is so varied. It's so beautiful. There's so many different patterns. When you think about just the mm-hmm. ovary itself, mm-hmm. I mean, we could sit and talk for hours and hours and hours about all the different patterns that you can see in the ovary. And that's only yeah. one of many organs in the GYN system. And so I think okay. as a resident, that immediately struck me how diverse mm-hmm. the the 
the platter of all different things that you're going to see in just one day sign out. Mm-hmm. It just, it was over overwhelming to me how much beauty and intrigue and just fascinating things that, that you could see compared to other organs. And I'm not going to disparage any in particular. Um, I but... will. I'm <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to mention breast pathology, but. Um... Oh, that's not what I was going to say. Oh, see, I... yeah. What, no. So what would you say? <laughs> We shouldn't get ourselves in trouble here. No, no, it's not fair. It's not fair to the organs. It has to do with my experience in residency, which I honestly think it's interesting because I feel like there are two groups of people who answer this question. Half of them say there was this one person I saw who was doing GYM pathology and they were awesome and I liked how they did it. And I found, and I sort of went down that path with them. And then there are people like you who say, I just loved the material, you know, independent of who was doing it. I loved the material. Yeah. So it's it's the content. And I will say that, you know, I did, I did have a wonderful mentor, Chuck Zolotic, who was our GYN pathologist here. And, you know, I, I, he, he retired earlier this year and, you know, in, in my, my comments at his retirement party, you know, I, I told, I told the audience, I said, I think half of the reason of, why I am where I am today is because of mentors Mm -hmm. and Chuck is one of the big mentors in my life. And as much as, you know, as much as I have tried to make decisions that come from my own ideas and and energy, life has a lot of unexpected opportunities that come through mentorship. And so having, having the luxury and the benefits of great mentors, I think is, it's been a big factor in my own life. And he's one of a couple that have had huge impact on why I'm sitting here talking to you today on this mm-hmm. podcast. Podcast. So yeah. I assume that you always knew you wanted to be in academic medicine, just giving your training history. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, that's definitely true. I enjoy asking questions. I enjoy trying to get to the root of things, you know, where did this come from? Why is this so? How did this come to be? How does this relate to something else? And so in my mind, you know, I'm just constantly, you know, trying to see different perspectives about something and having teachers who respond to that. I've been very lucky in my life. I, you know, I went to a boarding school for high school that was kind of a college-oriented experience, and that really helped set the stage for me deciding that I really needed to go away. I needed to leave California and and get into a different environment where I would meet diverse people with diverse thoughts that were different from what I grew up with. And so when I was an undergrad, I, I was lucky to have, again, more teachers who really played into this idea of asking questions and And so all along, I have thought of myself as someday also being a teacher, also being able to ask those questions and actually do maybe not experiments, but studies, you know, clinical studies. And so it's always appealed to me, the idea of having the ability to have a career where I get to ask some questions, pursue them, and then share that with with my peers. And so there's no question in my mind that I've always wanted to go the academic route, even though when I did switch into pathology, I switched in as combined anatomic pathology and clinical pathology. Within about two months, I dropped the clinical pathology because I knew I'd rather spend two years subspecial, subspecializing rather than 
training for for something that I knew in my heart I was never gonna I hear it so I usually folks who end up in AP only they knew they were gonna yeah go the, you know yeah. that's a pretty good tell so so you've written a lot of manuscripts your CV is long and I assume that your process for writing articles is well honed maybe that's a topic for a separate podcast but you also serve on the editorial board for journals and I'm wondering what is your process for reviewing articles what have you learned about criticism and do you have any pointers yeah those are great questions I think the conversation kind of comes back to my time at the school of public health you know I think if I was gonna if I was going to say what are some of the take-home messages from that that year of training which was really short I mean one year it's a very short experience but I would say one of the things that I took away from that experience was the importance of recognizing the role of bias in understanding science, understanding manuscripts. You know, we spent a lot of time doing review of published articles, you know, New England Journal, JAMA, other articles to try to understand, is this a valid publication? Is, do the data, you know, A, are the data valid? Does it seem valid? And then B, do the um, conclusions based on that seem appropriate? Were the right statistics done? Were there things that are hidden um, or non-intuitive that may have influenced the way that the data was acquired or the way that the data was interpreted? So that that experience in, in, in my um, graduate training has always stayed with me. And so when I myself read a paper, that's pretty much one of the very first things that I look for. So I understand, as I try to understand what's the question that's being posed, what's mm-hmm. the gap in the literature that this article is trying to fill. That's very important. What's the hypothesis? And then I move very quickly to looking at the study design. So for me, um, trying to pull back the curtain on the methodology and reading exactly, you know, what is being collected here. What's the definitions of the terms that are being used? How do they define certain, you know, if it's an immunostain, what was the definition of a positive result versus a negative result? What were the controls? And I'm thinking about all the different possible ways that selection bias or other forms of bias could be at play. And so that's one of the first things that I do. A lot of times it's very clear that, okay, this is a great study design, the methodology is really great. The authors thought about all of these things. And so it can become very clear quickly that it's a very well-designed study. And so I think that's probably for me as important as the hypothesis is, okay, how was the study performed? Then you can move on to looking at their conclusions. And so, you know, is this, are these observations and results being communicated in a way that is reasonable? Or are the authors perhaps over-interpreting or maybe misdirecting the way that the data should be used? So I, I look at that as the third component. And it's hard. I think it's hard to review articles that you may not have an in-depth understanding of the, the larger context. So it's, it's, you know, it's one thing to review an article just for the structure, the methodology, you know, is it appropriately designed? But to really understand... Is this a, a, a manuscript that belongs in front of an audience of this particular journal? I think that is something that probably takes time. And that's why I think involved in peer review as early as possible in your career is important because it's, 
it's an art and you have to practice it. I think, you know, at least for me, it's something that I appreciate a constant stream of articles coming to me because I feel like I learn over the years. I'm continually learning how to be a better peer reviewer. Mm-hmm. And the idea is, I think as a peer reviewer, you know, we have a responsibility not just to the audience, you know, the, the field itself, but I think we also have a responsibility to the authors. How can we help the authors take what must have been a large amount of time and energy, how can we help them get the most out of it? And so I think a good peer review focuses on both of those elements. So, you know, you don't want to go in and, you know, tear apart a paper and say, you know, that this, this was not a very good study at all. Why did you even submit it? You want to say, okay, here are the things that I think are a little bit problematic, maybe some bias or maybe some things that were overlooked. You want to say, here's how you could improve this. Here's how you could re-spin this, reframe it, and give an opportunity for, you know, the authors to absorb that and see if they can, you know, make the, make the adjustments. So I'm thinking of both the authors and, and the audience when I'm doing the peer review. Yeah, that's good points. And it's very different than the way some other people have answered that. It's a very analytical way you answered that. You talk about your background in public health. I'm married to an epidemiologist. You kind of sound ah, like, you know, it's, okay. it's like <laughs> every time you ask him about data, he's like, well, I think we should back up three steps. And you're just like, oh yeah. my gosh. So yeah, you all should maybe one day <laughs> you can talk shop together, but it is, I think it's so interesting you know, where your background is, how you approach these things. Because some people say the first thing I look at is the grammar. If the grammar isn't good, if the paper is not well-written, I can't even get past that step, you know, and you go straight to the, you know, is A to B to C to D. And now I'll look at the, you know, finer points of the paper. I think I probably fall more on the language aspect. I sort of not focusing on the methodology at first, but I think that's more of a screening mechanism for me, which maybe isn't fair. But um, yeah, I always try to be very thorough in my comments because the worst thing you can do as an author is get a paperback that's been rejected and there's almost no information about why it was rejected because then you're like, well, what should I do? Should I put this in the bin or should I try again? I don't, you know, you've, everyone's been there. So. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. you know, when I get reviews that, that are very minimalist, even if the paper, you know, is, is approved, I feel yeah. like well, that was kind of an opportunity that may have been missed. I may have learned something yeah. if the reviewer would have made, you know, maybe a couple specific comments. Yeah. I you know, agree. I, I actually think, you know, speaking of, you know, bias, I think your comment about um, language, you know, that's yeah. actually, a, that, that's a form of reverse bias, right? So if you yeah. feel that the, the authors, you know, are not using, quote, grammatical English, you know, is that fair it's the not, authors. Right. It's not really grammar. I should be more specific. It's mostly yeah. like spelling errors and stuff that I, 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 cause the, the syntax I can help. Like, you know, if, yeah. if I'm like, this word needs to be there and you just meant yeah, to yeah, say yeah. X, but if it clearly looks like they didn't proofread the paper and I'm yes. like, that's, I just, I can't get past it. <laughs> I yeah. can't get past it. So that yeah. bothers me. Well, I tell you the thing that's always kind of been in the back of my mind ever since I I started writing the papers and seeing papers from folks who, you know, I I kind of become familiar with how they do their studies. What what if journals blinded the reviewers to the institution and the authors? So you're basically reviewing a paper, not knowing what institution it came from, 
or who the authors are. I thought that some journals did that, though, because isn't that why some people make you submit your title page separately? Why else would they make you do that? So that may occur in in some journals that I'm not aware of, but I can tell you for at least the pathology journals that, mm-hmm. that I do peer review for, it's it's not blinded. But mm-hmm. it's so I'm so curious about what would happen, you know. Oh, it oh could do a study, you know. A that would be a study it. in itself. That would be a great study. Oh yeah. I actually think, and I'm not just I'm not talking about GYM pathology. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. But I do think in academic medicine, right there, and academics in general, there are rivalries, and sometimes you wonder, like, how much does that play a role if X person is in charge of of Y journal and A person doesn't like B person and B person's an external and A person submits a paper, like, does it just turn into like high school cafeteria kind of stuff? Because I think that kind of stuff happens and it just makes you wonder, like, how much are we missing out on that we could know, but that kind of stuff doesn't make it through the gate or something. I don't know. Sometimes I, I try not you know to get what we need? up on this. Yeah. So, so, you know, Another track of my life that we haven't talked about is my culinary one. So, you know, I've, I've been wanting to go to culinary school for a very long time. But there's a wonderful book, uh, probably maybe most folks in the audience have read uh, Kitchen Confidential. No. Oh, you haven't. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh, he's that man who died recently. Yes. He was supposed to be wonderful. And honestly, yes, he has that show that was I I keep it's on my list of things to watch where he travels and cooks. Yes. Yes. So the origin story, the origin story is that he wrote a book called Kitchen Confidential that rocketed to the New York Times, you know, bestseller list. And it was a tell all behind the scenes of what it's like to work in. Um, you know, a very high uh, ranked restaurant in Manhattan. And so I forget the name of the restaurant that he worked at as a chef. And it's basically a tell all of what happens in the kitchen. And it is hysterical. It's all true. (laughs) It's his own autobiographical experience. But it's, it's, it, at the same time that the non-culinary world was just like, so enamored by the writing, a lot of folks in the chef world were really upset because he sort of, you know, pulled the curtain back on a lot of things that are embarrassing that they don't want people to know about. Wouldn't it be interesting if some editor, you know, or peer reviewer had one of these tell-all books about what it's like to be at JAMA or New England Journal to, you know, serve as mm-hmm. as peer review? That might or, be kind of an eye because. You know, some of these big egos are like beefing with each other in I'm sure, author yeah. review. I'm sure it's happening. <laughs> like, and, yeah. and sometimes it's probably like public health at line. Anyway, that's a very interesting conversation. We keep going off on tangents. This is fun. It's also late. So I'm See, to of, me, it's not a tangent. It's, I'm it's, giggly. It's <laughs> yeah, this is my, like, yeah. yeah, this is your yeah. life journey. <laughs> yeah. Just pinging around thinking. Okay. So let's see. Oh, we were going to talk. I, I've asked a lot of people this question to talk about your standard work day. Usually in academics, I put the caveat that, you know, like I was in community practice for a while, your your standard work day there is pretty uniform, right? But in academics, right. I assume there's a dichotomy between when you're on service and when you're not on service. So you can answer the question that way if you like. What's sure. It? Yeah. So for the trainees and in, in the audience, what does it mean to have an academic career? Well, what it means in general is that while you are doing clinical service work as, as you know, your mainstay, you are given some time for creative activity. And that creative activity has two major components. One is teaching. So, you know, teaching in the medical school, teaching in the residency, teaching at continuing education 
level. And then the other part is, is research. And so when you get, when you get a, a position as an academic pathologist, there is some proportion that you were told of your work days that are assigned for clinical work and some proportion for creative activities. And it varies from institution to institution and probably across the world, there's, there's many different permutations. So in my world, I have approximately 60, 65% of my calendar year is assigned for clinical work. And then the rest of the time is unsupervised playtime. Well, I shouldn't say it like that, but it's, it's the time where I do everything non-clinical. You got a sandbox so, and some toys. Yeah, office, yeah. Yeah. And so it's really important if you're going to go, you know, down the track of an academic career, you make some good decisions about where that first job is, because that amount of time that you have dedicated for your, we call it off-service time, may not look the same in all places. So, you know, a clinical day for me consists of three things. The way that we've divided up our service, we have biopsies from our biopsy clinics. And so those are assigned to one trainee. And that may take about two to three hours of my day to go through all those biopsies, cervix, vulvar, vagina, endometrium usually, and then products of conception. And then we have what we call our big specimens, which are all the specimens that are procured in the operating room. And depending on the day, you know, that may take another four to five hours to go through all of those cases. And so on a, on a regular day, I'm working with a trainee for both of those types of cases. You know, in the pre-COVID era, we would sit at my microscope in my office. I have a multi-head microscope. I usually also have visitors, international visitors, um, who come to spend um, time. We also have medical students come. So I usually would have anywhere from two to three other trainees at at my multi-head microscope. And the trainee, my office setup is that the trainee has a computer access to our pathology database. I have my separate one and we kind of just go through the cases and talk about relevant teaching points in each case. And then we sign out the reports. For the big specimens, we also have gross photos that, w- that are taken while the specimens are being dissected. And so mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of using gross pathology to integrate with the microscopic features. And so Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time going through those gross photos during the sign out with the trainee and also going through the gross descriptions and talking about how all of that influences our differential diagnosis. And then I said there were three different types of specimens. The third type of specimen are consultation cases. So Mm -hmm. these are cases that pathologists in in the community may want a second opinion or a little bit of input before they issue their final diagnosis. And so we have a GynePath fellowship, and that's one of the major things that those fellows do. And so um, I sit with them. They bring me the cases that they've already previewed, and we kind of go through them. And they're usually of a complexity level that is much higher than our in-house cases. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a typical day... um, and you don't do all three of those things in the same day, I assume. Well, um, yeah, the, the, the short answer is you're <laughs> correct. Yeah, we just do the biopsies and the bigs on one day. And then we, <clears throat> excuse me, we do the uh, consults on, a, on another day. Because the consults can be quite, quite time consuming. Yeah. Um, you know, they're the, the, usually the hardest of the hardest puzzles. That's the, and are the, the fellows are doing the consults, I assume? Not the yes. residents? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, those can so, be, they can be pretty complicated for a like a first year resident to sort of oh, dive yeah, right into that. Yeah. that would be it's not. Cool. Yeah, I yeah. think from an educational standpoint, you don't get the same bang for your buck if, if you're a junior trainee looking at those consults. It's just yeah. it's not aligned with where you are. Yeah. Um, every day we have a consensus conference at our multi head mm-hmm. microscope with the other GYN faculty, and so mm-hmm. every day at four o'clock we get together and we show each other the cases that we want input from each other. And we also show interesting teaching cases or rare, rare cases that have come through our service. So it's usually about 30 minutes, sometimes an hour every day. Mm-hmm. So that's the standard day. You know, if I was only doing clinical work, you know, I could probably show up around eight and, you know, go home around six. But as we know, we don't just do clinical work in a given day. There's also administrative and some research stuff. And so the days can be pretty long, you know. Yeah, we spend our time on Zoom together. more than than we'd care to talk about these days. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, we can transition to talking about, is GIP live? We'll skip the other question for now, but you're currently the secretary for ISGIP and have been involved in launching the virtual programming known as ISGIP Live, which stands for, you want to tell everyone what that actually stands for live? Live virtual education. (laughs) It's weirdly capitalized. I have to think about it every time. Okay. So I was brought in a little bit late in the process. Do you want to talk about your organization with ISGIP and then ISGIP Live and launching that and what it's been like? Yeah, sure. So ISGIP, International Society of GYN Pathologists, it's the flagship global community for folks who are interested in GYN pathology. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I should know how many years it's been in existence. I could try to Google it quickly. 1976, I think, something Thank like you. that. I looked it up Thank for the you. Journal Club PowerPoint. It's the yeah. 70s, I know that. Yeah. It's been a while, yeah. After Richard Nixon resigned from office, I know that, yes. Uh, I don't know if that's a causal relationship there. And, and... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of obsessed with Watergate, so for me, everything is before and after that in the 70s. Got it, but anyway, got it, yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, no, I think ISGIP has... You know, I've known about it since I was a resident, and it really has grown in, an, in a really wonderful, amazing way from something that, you know, offered a companion session at the annual USCAT meeting with the journal, you know, the, the International Journal of Gynepath was, this, was its other major activity, to something now that has so many different arms and branches of trying to promote education that is, I'd like to say, democratized. We're trying to get no matter what part of the world you're in, you know, there should be access to the, the advances in, in our field. They should be accessible no matter where you are in the world. And so I think ISGIP has been doing a lot to promote that. It also does a lot to support investigative and research activities, especially mm-hmm. of young members. The society has a lot of opportunities to support not only trainees, but also young faculty. And, you know, I'm aging myself here, but I'm no longer young. 40 and under is the definition of of young. So to me, that's, yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a wonderful community that I think really is trying to support research and education and camaraderie and networking and training. It's a great way to you know, find a mentor. It's a great way to find collaborators for collaborative type of research. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate enough to be asked a couple years ago to get involved in the education committee and then help out with the secretary role. And it's just been a really wonderful experience in the last couple of years working for some amazing boards, amazing presidents, currently Astro Oliva, who just has so many wonderful ideas of how to you know, improve our field. It's 
a wonderful organization to get involved in no matter where you are in your career. And just a plug for any of the trainees out there, you can join the society for free for and free. Not, not pay a penny mm-hmm. and get access to the journal and mm-hmm. get access to all sorts of education. So the ISGIP Live is, is, I think, something that the timing was just right up until, up until we started it. You know, the main way to, to have educational events was in-person conferences. And you no, know, there's a lot in the United States and there are some in Europe and there are not that many outside of the US, outside of North America and Western Europe. And so it just, you know, with the advent of technology and Zoom, any other virtual remote access tool, it's revolutionized just global interactions. And so the timing just, it just, came about, like we realized, hey, we don't have to restrict our conferences to in-person conferences. Why not? Mm -hmm. Why not have them available virtually? You know, the only thing that you're missing out is that kind of human interaction of standing next to somebody, you know, at a break and chit-chatting, you know, we do miss that component. Mm -hmm. But it just, it just seemed to be a natural progression of, you know, the ease of, of using Zoom. And then, of course, COVID hit, and so yeah. that I think it wasn't intentional that we that we launched Isgip Live because of the pandemic, but it just happened to be great timing. And then I will say, Natalie, you are one of the major major pillars of Isgip Live. You know, when we <laughs> learned about your journal club, that I think is what really helped to catalyze um, the process because you have the experience, you've been doing the format that you know, we envisioned using and why reinvent the wheel? You know, you have a gift for running these journal clubs and, you know, the technology. And so I think bringing you on board, that's what really sealed the deal and made us understand, yeah, we can make this happen. We can be successful. So we're, you know, I have to say the success of Isgip Live is in no small part due to your um, years of experience running your journal club. Oh, shucks. I will say that the existential dread of the pandemic hitting is what made me take mine online. And I want to say until a month before I did my journal club online, I didn't even know how to make a Zoom invite. So, you know, I think we've all grown a lot technology wise during the pandemic and being married to a person who can program his own computer from scratch doesn't hurt. So uh, we were talking about, you you know, I had, I'll just mention, I had a, Mm -hmm a tiny little book as a kid that I absolutely loved. It, um, <laughs> it was a book of Aesop's fables. Okay. And, and I forget the story. I think I know which one it is, but do you know Aesop's, Aesop's fables? They, they yeah. kind of like little stories. That, Look that before you leave lessons. and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what you're, what you were describing here and sort of the, the global response to, you know, education in the era of the pandemic reminds me of the Aesop fable about necessity being the mother of invention, you know? So I think that really applies here. Really does. And I think you were talking about democratization. I think it yeah. will be a side effect of the pandemic that ultimately educational opportunities will increase for people in low resource countries because us folks in the you know developed world had to finally 
make things available to everyone instead of meeting in sort of rarefied spaces where things weren't recorded or if they were, you know, for a long time at USCAP, the tradition has been to put a PowerPoint online, but it's not narrated. So you don't really get the same experience of hearing someone explain something. So you lose out on those sort of coffee table moments and the, you know, seeing your friends going out to dinner and sitting next to your former co-fellow or something. But now, you know, you have folks in different parts of the world who don't have to pay a plane ticket fare and, you know, take time off work and all that stuff. Well, so. well, to, you know, just so the audience can hear something, we're talking in kind of concepts. I'll, I'll give you a real example. So in my role as secretary for the society, I handle all the applications for mm. membership. And so a couple of years ago, we started out with one pathologist. I think that they were a trainee in Rwanda and they were interested in GynePath. But they wrote me and they said that, you know, there were no GYN pathologists, there were no mentors, nothing that they had access to. And so they asked, could they be a member? And this is right around the time where ISJIP created the category of trainee membership. And so that person became a member and then he spoke to some of his colleagues. And the long story short is, I think we have about six, six folks, trainees in Rwanda, who are members of our society, who mm -hmm. can now have a connection to us, but also locally engage with themselves. They have a framework for looking at cases and mm -hmm. you know, using what they see. And we have a couple categories of awards to support activities from folks from low resource parts of the world. And I really hope that these small little actions will eventually lead to some folks sort of being able to make use of what we have to offer and mm -hmm. build up themselves build up locally, you know, the expertise and the interests there. And it's yeah. kind of like planting seeds and providing a little bit of water and fertilizer. And all of a sudden, you know, things grow all across the world. And I think yeah. that's the hope is that these little connections, even though we're in a kind of virtual reality environment right now, eventually will blossom. So yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so different. So, all right. So we are going to talk, I was going to talk to you a little bit about teaching. We're kind of running long, so I'm going to try to uh, curtail some of the end questions here. We have a lot of questions, a lot of lovely things to talk about, but you, you do quite a bit of teaching. You've won teaching awards. I'm wondering, you've already talked a little bit about teaching, but how specifically have you adapted your methods for 2020 and the experiences that we've been having? You said you do sign out virtually now and you incorporate gross photos. So I assume that your international trainees are not there anymore. <laughs> They're just not at UCSF. Are they logging on? I mean, what does it look like? Do you have more than one person on Zoom signing out with you now? How does that work? Yeah, so those are all great questions. And I think, you know, the the sad, I mean, there's very, many, many very, very sad parts of the pandemic. But I think one of the unfortunate things is the, the impact on education. Mm -hmm. And I could talk to you a ton about this, both at the resident level and the medical student level and continuing education level. I mean, there's so many different ways that education has been negatively impacted. We, we talked about ISJIP Live being sort of a way of continuing education, being restored to, to some extent. And so I'm hopeful that a lot of these virtual, these meetings that from professional organizations that used to be in person, they're now pretty much converting to, to virtual sessions. So that's good. I think the puzzle of helping trainees during this era still, you know, we, we do have some workarounds. So I am fortunate in my department that we have several multi-headed microscopes, like 10-headed microscopes, mm -hmm. that if you've ever seen one, the distance 
between the driver and the observer is more than six feet. Provided there aren't 10 people around it, right? Exactly. So, (laughs) so what we do is, you know, it requires, requires you to, you know, have a good reservation schedule for your different scopes, depending on how many you have. But um, I do the sign out still at the microscope. Mm -hmm. Obviously we're wearing masks and we are definitely more than six feet apart and it's a large room. It's well ventilated. So I'm still doing my sign out and many of my colleagues are doing sign out in that way, but you're just six feet apart from, from the other person. There are some services in my department that are actually hundred percent digital. So we're actually one of those institutions that kind of bought into the idea mm-hmm. of, you know, going digital for, for clinical sign out. And so there are a couple services like our renal, renal service here. There's no glass slides anymore. And so, you know, you ever can, at all. Well, I mean, they create the glass slides, they digitize them in the laboratory, and then those glass slides immediately get filed because the trainee and the faculty only they look were, at the cases digitally. They were pandemic ready. What? Yeah. Oh, wow. our neuro, our neuropath, our head of neuropathology, he told me he hasn't come into work for the entire pandemic because he does it all from home with a digital sign out. And, you know, digital sign-out is great for certain um, types of specimens, but I would say for GYN pathology, you know, you can't really evaluate cervical biopsies and appreciate subtle levels of atypia or trying to look at fallopian tube fimbria, you know, is this yeah. a stick or a still? It just, it doesn't really work. And so we do the old-fashioned glass slide method. Yeah, yeah. I have found that it works quite well with mid to upper level trainees. They preview the case, they write it up, you look at the pertinent points together. They Uh, don't need that high power view, you know, but with, I find it's even harder with first year trainees, but I've adapted my methods and I'm trying to get better. But my, the unfortunate thing is my multi-headed scope isn't even across the table. It's a right angle one. So uh, okay. you're almost shoulder to shoulder. There's just no way to do no, it. No, that's not safe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. So let's see. Oh, you are the first guest you won an award to ever read the outline to the point where you actually added your own questions with knowing you now <laughs> and knowing your personal history. All of it's a piece, Joe. Oh, so yeah. we'll get to a few of your questions here. No, we um, don't have to. I just thought. No, you know. I want to. Are you kidding? This is treasure. So, <laughs> oh, so we're going to talk about, you wanted to talk a little bit about recruiting medical students into pathology I and how to improve it, which I think implicit in your question is the idea that pathology isn't something that most medical students know about. So what do you, what do you think we can do better about that? Well, I think of that. So I don't have an answer to that. I can tell you what's not, <laughs> I can tell you what the barriers are. You know, I think the barrier is time. I think that, you know, prioritization of time during the first two years to pathology is uh, something that I've, I've witnessed diminish over yeah. you know, the 16, what, what actually 20 years that I've been here at this institution. I've just seen the amount of time dedicated to first and second year medical education and pathology just slashed and continually every year diminished, diminished, diminished. You mean that the curriculum is cutting curriculum. out pathology? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's my in, experience In lieu well. for things that are yeah. important, you know, right. and so maybe I think, well, instead of cutting 
cutting down courses, why not make medical school five years? And, you know, that wouldn't fly, but. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think they spend the last six months anyway, just sort of studying. So it's really not even four years long, right? It's like three and a half years. (laughs) So so in, in my medical school, they used to have histology labs where we, you know, they'd have their boxes of slides and their microscopes and we go around and show them how to, you know, use the microscope and hunt for what they needed to see. And then when digital pathology kind of came on board a couple of years ago, they started digitizing the slides. And then our medical students said, you know, this is not efficient. We're spending too much time scanning around to look. We just want a static image. And so they got rid of the slides. And so now the, the histopathology basically is, um, you know, here's Snapshots. one snapshot. Yeah. And so, so that's yeah. not really, you know, that's not really seeing behind the curtain of what pathology is all about. But I think the bigger thing, yeah. bigger thing, if I was going to say one thing to expose medical students to is the fact that we are clinicians, right? So we're not just technicians, you know, seeing a piece of data and interpreting it and then issuing a report. I think I really, you know, a really good pathologist is someone who is a clinician who integrates the medical record, the gross findings, the microscopic findings, and then potentially has interactions back with the clinician about the case. Certainly at tumor board that happens. And I think that's a window. I mean, that's what I enjoy about my my career. I know my GYN oncologists, the OB-GYNs, the genetic counselors, the radiation oncologists, the radiologists and the cancer registry folks, I know them all very, very well. And I feel like I'm integrated as part of a clinical team. And even though I may not see the clinician or the patient every single day, I have interactions that I believe impact my interpretation and my reports. And I think that's what students don't really get to see. And I think if they were able to see that, and a great example is simply the role of intraoperative evaluation of a, of a specimen. If the students were able to see that in their first year, they would realize, oh, as a pathologist, you can be integrated as a clinician, making real de- helping to make real decisions in real time. I think that's what's missing. That's the real thing missing. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think once they see that, they realize that it's really cool, right? But I think most people think of pathologists as like the people who sign reports. They have no idea what we do. Exactly. <laughs> no idea. How, how can you make a decision? You know, what probably one of the most important decisions in your life is, you know, what, what career you're going to pursue. If you have, I mean, it's, it's very easy to look at a surgeon and to know, okay, I know what they do. To look mm-hmm. at an orthopedist, I know what they do. Pediatrician, okay, that's pretty mm-hmm. clear what they do, but not so much a pathologist. And yeah, so how true. can you say, I'm not going to do that if mm-hmm. you don't understand what it is that you're kind of turning your eye away from? Yeah, that's funny because I, I actually ended up choosing pathology because I crossed almost everything else off the list. <laughs> And the only thing that was left on the list was OBGYN. And I think that's why I sort of ended up back at GYN pathology. Yeah. But that's very interesting that you said it like that. So we kind of touched on that second one of your questions. But oh, okay. So this was a big question. It was a long one, but it was about the split between community practices and what they're doing and academic centers and what they're doing. And this is something I, I find in Journal Club all the time, right? Because we know now, because we're getting statistics, most of the people coming to these EGIP live events are practicing pathologists. And we don't know if they're in academic centers, but I assume that at least a proportion of them are not. 
So in academic medicine, I think we're refining diagnostic testing. We're finding more entities where, and a lot of them have targeted therapies, but the testing to find those entities can often be very expensive. And having practiced community medicine, I know that it's very different. You know, if you want to order that fancy test, you have to get approved or X, Y, and Z, and the hospital is not going to pay for it. So if the patient's insurance isn't going to pay for it, it just can't be done. Right. So how do you approach training trainees with this level of sophistication that you have, say a place like UCSF, knowing that most of your trainees are going to go into community practice. It's a, you know. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's one that applies to any, any specialty area within the medical field, not just pathology. You know, I talk to my classmates who are in private practice and they kind of tell me what their case mix is like, and it's totally different. You know, Mm -hmm. in, in my world, on a daily basis, I see cancers and precursors all the time, but it's very rare in private practices to see that. So it's a different world. I think it really is an area that, you know, nobody teaches you how to be a teacher, right? There's no class that you go to, you know, you get your job. Well, unless you're ironically going to teach, right? I mean, like, you know, my daughter's teacher, she's in kindergarten. (laughs) That person learned how to teach, but then like, People like you and and I who are teaching people who are going to like change people's lives with, you know, diagnostic stuff. Just wing it. it. Yeah. So, so, you know, the concept of that you've brought up is something that I don't really think is formally thought about by, by us as pathology educators. And, and the interesting thing is I've never stepped a day in a private practice setting. Mm -hmm. So I actually don't have a, you know, an experience-based way to answer this question. But what I do know is that we have resources in our academic center that are, you know, not easily accessible to folks, you know, a mile from here in an excellent private care facility. So when I'm looking, let's say to take the example of germ cell tumors that you brought up, when I see a cool looking, you know, mixed germ cell tumor, and I want to you know, figure out, ooh, is this a little component of embryonal carcinoma in there? Or maybe there's, you know, some, some imp- interesting heterologous thing happening. I have access to a large number of immunohistochemical stains that I can use. And a lot of them, you know, a lot of the times we can order them out of curiosity because we've developed a new antibody that just got published. And so the decisions that we make during sign out on a daily basis of what ancillary testing to order are not necessarily driven by what is needed purely for clinically signing out that case. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that is hard to keep at the forefront of your mind of, of, you know, showing, sharing with the trainee, okay, so here we have a dysgerminoma. Do I really need to get an OCT4 on this case? Or is the morphology classic enough Mm-hmm. And I have no concerns about a differential diagnosis, mm-hmm. but I can sign it out based on H&E. Because really, if that trainee is going to go into private practice, that's what you want them to walk out of residency with. It's an understanding of what are the cases, how, how can I recognize classic morphology that doesn't need ancillary testing versus permutations or variations that have a differential diagnosis in which I probably need to order some ancillary testing and if so, what is, what is the appropriate panel that I should be ordering in that setting? And I, mm-hmm. I 
I don't know, maybe other institutions do this better, but in my institution, we kind of really don't have those conversations. Mm. We just know, okay, I've got this really cool new marker for germ cell differentiation. Let's order it on this case along with these others. And I think it leaves the trainee in a, in a unfortunate situation of not knowing, oh, is that required? Is that needed in order to make the diagnosis? So I think it's a big challenge. It's a responsibility on our part as educators to be aware of this. Mm -hmm. And another example, probably a better example for the audience is the fact that many academic institutions have built up their own next generation sequencing platform, right? So that's not something that a private practice is really going to be building up on their own. And I'm sure folks in the audience, you know, who are at such institutions are seeing cases being sent for NGS testing. You know, we have protocols now where we are thinking about for endometrial cancer, getting rid of immunohistochemical evaluation for Lynch syndrome risk factors. You know, normally you do the mismatch repair immunostains. And the question is, wouldn't it be better just to do next generation sequencing? Because then you could also get your P53 result, your POL-E mutation results, beta-catenin, maybe some other targets for therapy. You know, that's a conversation that folks in private practice are not really dealing with. And so I think we have to be careful when we're sitting in sign-outs of helping our trainees understand, you know, what are, what are conversations and tests that are kind of at the cutting edge of something that are almost experimental versus standard of care. Yeah, you need like a nice to have versus need to have. What's that? Exactly. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you know, the other thing that I struggled with going from, well, going from a place like Hopkins to going to community practice was a journey, right? I mean, I often say I could write a book, but I really think I could. But the one one thing that was very hard for me was grossing because mm, mm-hmm. grossing in an academic center and I don't think I've ever let go of this. You put in more sections, right? But in community practice, time is money, blocks are money. Everything is, you know, <laughs> like, and if you're the only pathologist in your group who's submitting X number of blocks per hysterectomy, for example, it's it's an issue. It's not like they're not going to fire you because of it, but it, it's it's hard to let go of the way you were doing it in academics, right? And not, like you said, not knowing what's nice to have and what's necessary to have. Um, that was hard for me. That was yeah. really hard for me. And, and I sent and- myself back to the bucket quite a few times. <laughs> I still do. I love going yeah. back to the bucket, especially if I'm not the one who grossed the specimen. I like to get in there and look at it, which I think residents who gross too much are like, oh, I'm never going to go back to the bucket. And I'm like, trust me, when you are sitting at the microscope and you don't know the answer, it's going to feel really good to go back to the bucket. Trust me. Yeah. Well, I, I will throw in another plug for ISGIP activities. And mm-hmm. I will mention that there, over the last year and a half, there's been a major initiative for improving and standardizing the way that endocervical adenocarcinoma Mm -hmm. is evaluated and reported. Long story short, there's a set of recommendation papers that are going to be published in, I believe, February online. Mm -hmm. And I was part of the recommendation guidelines for uh, gross specimen management. Mm -hmm. And one of, so, so this gets back to your question of how do you know what's standard, what's required? What is the evidence, right? That's the way to answer the question. And so one of the um, really enlightening things in trying to, in being a part of this panel that looked at, you know, how should leaps and cones be grossed? How should 
trachelectomies, radical hysterectomies? What should we do with lymph nodes that are mm -hmm. sentinel lymph nodes? Mm -hmm. You know, the enlightening thing is to systematically go through the literature and say, mm -hmm. do we have any evidence to tell mm -hmm. us, oh, you should cut two levels on every tissue block of a cone? You know, mm -hmm. we sat around and debated that for hours, you know, because honestly, I, I know that this would not have a big audience. <laughs> I would listen to that recording start yeah. to finish. <laughs> well, I tell you, in the end, you know, the most important thing, I think, um, as a physician, regardless of whether you're in private practice or academics, is to simply know, is there evidence or not? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. if the answer is there is no evidence, well, then you then then that gives you license to do what you think is the best thing. Right. And that's part of what these papers are trying to do is make a statement. There is evidence for this recommendation or there is no evidence for this. And then this is what we would recommend as best practice. That's and, lovely. you know, yeah. that's it's an attempt to kind of deal with all the gaps and deficiencies of the literature. But you still have to make a decision. You still have to sign out a report, even if there's no evidence. And so these recommendation papers provide a little bit of help to to deal with what to do in the, in those gaps. That's going to be a good right in time for use cap. So I'm sure yeah. that's part of the plan. So, yeah. okay. So we'll fold together the last questions about GYM pathology fellowships. You are the director of your GYM pathology fellowship. There actually aren't that many GYM fellowships in the country uh, for an area of the body that I think generates quite a few specimens. I would guess that most people sort of folded into surge path would be my guess, but any advice for folks who are interested in doing that kind of fellowship and, or in, they're not in a place where one's available, mm -hmm. how would, how, I mean, maybe it's not applicable anymore, but how you went about picking yours and um, what you have to say about that. I'm not that old, Natalie. No, but I don't know. Maybe you did it because you read a comic book or something. I don't know. You have such like a such a circuitous route to getting everywhere. I'm not sure your life journey is replicable, right? Um, replicable. So, so you know, I think you're correct when you say they're not they're not that many fellowships, and yeah. and I do have evidence to back that up. So about a year ago, ISGIP sent out a worldwide request for all members to let ISGIP know, are you aware of a training program, a fellowship training program in Gynepath at your institution or in a, in a neighboring institution? And we thought, okay, this is going to be great. We're going to collate this all. We're going to have a list. And so no matter what part of the world you're in, we're going to have this list of who you can contact. You know, so if you're in, um, I don't know, Mozambique, you know, here are some options for you in your part of the world. I guess I was a little naive in doing this because mm -hmm. it turns out that um, the only training programs that are formal GYN path training programs of the folks who responded to us are all in the United States. Hmm. Yeah. And there's about, I'm going to say there's about 30 of them. It's, it's kind of increased a little bit mm -hmm. over the last year and a half. So there's only about 30 of them. I I have this question that remains in my mind. What do people do, let's say, in Western Europe who want to pursue GYN pathology? You know, what's the mechanism for doing that? And there must be some mechanism, but we haven't formally talked to folks. You know, that would be something that I think we should do. We should talk to some of the well-known GYN pathologists and ask what happens in your I part have, of the world. I have talked to some of them, but... <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we do, we do seems... have a lot of folks coming to the U.S., for, for their training. Yeah. And also I think it's more of like an apprenticeship model, right? They, and the way they go to med school, they start basically when what 
they go right from what we call high school into medical school. So it's a much longer journey. And I think they have longer to make up their mind about doing pathology. And then I think it's like, if they know someone who does it, but it, you're right. It's not as, it's not as formalized. And that's interesting that there aren't even any in Canada, right? There are none in Canada. Cause there's yeah, so there many. weren't any that respond. Yeah. I think it may be more of an apprenticeship type of yeah. experience, but yeah, maybe but they that build being them. said, I think my main way to to talk about talk about this issue is to talk about the concept of mentorship. Mm-hmm. It kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. I think the most important thing at that level of training is to align yourself with somebody that you see has the potential for the two of you to have a mentee mentor dynamic, mm-hmm. because you know. The it really I, I like your phrase apprenticeship because it's kind of like the old medieval you know you want to learn how mm-hmm. to make shoes, you go work with the guy who's you know seventy years old who's been making shoes for forty years that is the best education that you're mm-hmm. going to get mm-hmm. right and so aligning yourself with somebody who a has a reputation as a generous teacher, mm-hmm. a compassionate teacher a giving teacher somebody who's going to be willing to consistently you know give time as a teacher. And these are all things that you can learn by talking to other people. And, you know, people have developed reputations and, you know, you, you can basically through talking, networking and asking advice, you, you can kind of narrow down a field of folks that, that are going to be the right type of mentor for you. And um, I think that's, that's super important. I think the idea of, you know, going to a place that has a large case mix, that's important to a certain extent. Going to a place that has, you know, let's just say in the era of molecular diagnostics, lots of technology available, that mm-hmm. I think to an extent is important. But I still am going to put in a huge pitch for the value of a mentor, you know, yeah. that, that aligns with you. And that not, and, and I guess my point is, there are incredible mentors out there at programs that may not have, you know, their own next generation sequencing platform. And that's mm-hmm. totally okay because you're going to get the most out of your experience developing, you know, a year long interaction with somebody who can have incredible impact on your, on your yeah. career. And the, and for me, the exciting thing about mentorship is you know, the, the folks who were my mentors is, they didn't stop being my mentors when I stopped being a fellow. And I think if you can picture yourself training with a person and then emailing that person a year or six months, three months later and saying, Hey, I have this really hard case or, Hey, I'm a junior attending now and I need help. What can you do? And picture that person firing an email back to you with a list of 10 or 15 things. Like these are the things you should be doing because a lot of academic medicine is sort of like could choose your own adventure with a blindfold on. Like sometimes I, I feel like people are like, these are the 50 things you need to do if you want to get promoted and you're, and then there's just crickets, you know? So having someone who's done it well and who not necessarily that you will be friends with, but you think that would continue to support you. And I, I, I complete, I think that is a really wonderful way of, of saying it. I, on a, weekly basis am interacting with prior fellows yeah who, you know for everything that you just said either advice on cases or just them sharing interesting cases mm-hmm. to research type of questions to yeah. you know more mentorship it's it's a lifelong you know when when you when you set it up correctly it's a lifelong opportunity 
Yeah. And I, and so when you're picking the place, don't just pick it. Cause it's like, I mean, you do what you need to do for your life, but if you, if you have the luxury of choosing a place and you can see yourself interacting with that person, you know, and they'll come on your podcast when you ask them for example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even though Biggie is like, she told me that she can't even listen to her own voice on a recording. She still did my podcast. <laughs> Which is dude, that's that's mentorship right there. So yeah, I, I will tell you one other thing related to related to you know Brown and East Coast and you know I'm I'm from the West Coast. And a piece of information that has always been a constant in different of my mentors is the phrase "go away, go away." Mm-hmm. So you know I still remember when I was in high school, I went to boarding school in Southern California. And I thought I was going to go to Stanford. I thought I was going to go to UCLA. And I remember my French teacher, Mr. Bird, Monsieur Oiseau, he sat down. And once he found out my college plan, I remember him shaking his head. And he was like, you have to go away. You have to get into a different environment because that's how you're going to grow. And, and then fast forward to when I was thinking about doing GYN pathology, my mentor, Chuck Salotic, you know, I thought, okay, I'll just study under him. And he's like, nope, you have to go away. <laughs> and my other colleague, Karuna Garg, who, who I work with now, she trained in our program and wanted to be GYN. And Chuck told her the same thing. You have to go away. And so she went to Memorial Sloan Kettering. And mm-hmm. it's incredible advice. I mean, it's simple. But when you see a different lens of the world, when you see the, yes. a, the way that other people look at something you know, it builds your horizons, it builds your foundation. And, and I will tell you, you know, I've had my fill of New England. <laughs> oh, really? The ice, the ice, the snow. Well, I was there for a decade, right? So, so mm-hmm. as much as, as much as, you know, I had spent, you know, almost a decade there for undergrad and med school and grad school, when Chuck told me that I had to go work with Robin Young, I was like, oh, like the Robin, the Robin Young in Boston. Bust, the- bust out those <laughs> snow boots, Joe. It's time to come back to New England. Although I will say, I would tolerate a, a longer winter, shorter days ice for not having to do the summers that I had to do when I lived in North Carolina. And yeah. California is pretty hot, although not where you are. But the no. smoke, that's what got me when I lived in Colorado. I was like, what is happening right now? And they were like, yeah, it's just like this for a while. And I was like, what? Because I have asthma. I couldn't run outside. I was like, this is a bummer. So I think yeah. we all have our own um, things we're I, willing to tolerate, right? <laughs> I, I have packed up so many U-Haul boxes over the course of my life that when I finally, you know, mm-hmm. when I got my job here, I was like, I'm never going to pack up another moving box again. <laughs> I feel we'll see you. How long that yeah, I know. We'll see. But it, yeah, I ugh, moving is but, for the, yeah, yeah, moving is not great. The, the point is, though, is that I think that, you know, diversifying your your experience. I think it's tough if you go to a residency program that has an incredible fellowship because yeah. the temptation is I'll just stay here for my fellowship. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. I think it's something people should really think about. If you stay in the same program for mm-hmm. your residency and your fellowship and then you go get a job, is that the same thing, same experience, the same benefits, the same rewards as yeah. having one year somewhere else. I will tell you, thinking about my first day of medical school at one of the welcome introductions, there was a faculty who came out and, and this is a true story. 
they said if a nuclear bomb exploded on the earth and the only the only area that survived was the boston area the progress of medical science would be unobstructed and i thought oh my gosh <laughs> is that the attitude that i've got four years to do you with? have to bite down on your knuckles yeah or try not to puke so, <laughs> yeah no i mean there's there's yeah. there are mentors everywhere on this yeah. planet yeah. There are wonderful mentors everywhere. There are wonderful students everywhere on this planet. And I think that, you know, you can have a great career anywhere yeah. as long as you're following what your inner desire is and, yeah. and really, you know, constantly asking yourself, what, what is it that really makes me feel joy and happiness and fulfillment? And as long as you listen to that, um, you know, I don't think I had a circuitous life. I think I have one where I, I followed I mean, as I, keep I learned along. I accidentally insulting you. That's not what I meant. <laughs> I just meant like no one would be like, I bet Joe Rabin ended up as a professor of pathology starting out interested in art history. Like that's probably not on the multiple choice moves well, people yeah, would yeah. make up about your life. I, I mean, hear what you're saying. I hear just, what you're saying. It's an interesting path. I appreciate it. I mean, I was a Spanish yeah. major and I always felt like I couldn't hang with the kids in med school because I wasn't like, you know, biochem yeah, yeah. person. So it's, you know, everybody has their own life journey. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I really thank you for doing this, Joe. This was a lot of fun. I can always tell it's been a good podcast when my cheeks hurt from smiling. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a good way to end the week. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. No, I've enjoyed this. Thank you so much for having me on. And yeah. um, this is uh, great. And and I'm going to, you know, go back and listen to all the other podcasts. I've listened to a couple of them and they're, they're really wonderful. So thank you for really, putting yeah, these together. I think it's a great it's, it's a great opportunity for... Yeah, and this is how out. we're going to recruit the people to become pathologists. They're just going to just hear how personable and wonderful we are, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Joe. Have a good night. All right. Thanks. Bye.